0: Whoa! Thank you, worship team. Terrific. Let's open the Word of God, please, to Acts chapter 16, verse 6. And, uh, you know, as a, as a believer in Christ, I believe in miracles. And as a pastor of a church, I believe miracles happen at church sometimes, too. And today we saw an amazing miracle because uh, Phyllis Davis was 30 minutes early for church. But that's, that's kind of a technicality because she was actually 30 minutes late. She forgot to fall back. But, you know, it has never happened before. And I've only been here for 27 years. So, I didn't think it would ever happen. Okay, I'm, I'm up David. Let's uh, read our passage this morning. Acts 16, 6 through 10. And I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Verse 6. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, that might be edifying if you knew who they was. So let's go back to the context. Go back to chapter 15, verse 40. We're talking about the very beginning phases of Paul's second missionary journey. And we read this. But Paul chose Silas and left left Antioch Bible Fellowship to start the second missionary journey, being committed by the brethren there at Antioch to the grace of the Lord during their missionary journey. And he, Paul, as the leader, was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul also came to Derby and the Lystra, two cities high on the list of the first missionary journey. We're now in the second one. He's revisiting. And a disciple was there in Lystra named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer in Christ, but his father was a Gentile and not a believer. And he, Timothy, was well spoken of by the brethren, by the various Christians in his hometown, Lystra, and in the big city down the road, Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him on the trip. He wanted him to be a ministry associate. He was younger and could help them out. So Paul took him and circumcised him uh, out of consideration for the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew his father was a Greek. And two weeks ago, we talked about, based on uh, that statement some others, that we need to uh, love our spiritual liberty, but at times limit it. And in this case, Paul said, let's limit your liberty. Technically, you don't have to be circumcised. We've dealt with circumcision doesn't save or keep you saved. But because you are half Jewish and it would needlessly offend Jewish Christians and unbelievers, just do it. And move on. Verse 4. Now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. Remember that? There was a big debate in the first decades of the church. Because Jesus is a Jewish Messiah, does that mean Gentiles have to become Jews first before they can believe in the Jewish Messiah and be saved? And the answer was no. Salvation is by grace. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. By faith active, receptive trust in the Savior, whether you're Jew or Gentile, uh, Hebrew or Greek. And so uh, they had the big meeting in chapter 15 where the apostles hammered all this out and made it very clear. And now Paul's bringing that decree with them that Gentiles can believe and be saved just as Gentiles. You don't have to pre-qualify. And he's just confirming his message there. So the bottom line, last time I was here, was in verse 5. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith, which is great, and were increasing in number daily. That means Rick Schanemeyer is living his life and sharing the faith and using words when necessary. And it's not just drag your friends to church so the preacher on Sunday can tell them about the gospel, even though I'm happy to do that. But uh, you're supposed to live a contagious Christian life, even in ROTC, right? Way to go, bro. Look at verse 6. They, who's They. That'd be Paul, Silas, and Timothy, second missionary journey. We've kind of uh, passed the very first phases. Moving on to the second phase, they, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, passed through the Phrygian, that's a region like Oklahoma's a region, Duncan's a city, and the Galatian regions, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. What does that mean? We'll talk about that in a minute. And after they came to Mysia, which was a city in a region like New York is a city in the state of New York, but we're talking about the city here. When they came to the city of Mysia, they were trying to go into another state like Kansas, Bithynia, and the spirit of Jesus did not permit them. So they've had two no's. They wanted to go into Asia where Ephesus was, and God said, no, don't go. They wanted to go in Bithynia, um, and they say they get a no answer. So sometimes we see no answers, even to great things we want to do for God. And so passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And while, while they're in Troas, in modern Turkey today, just across the uh, Hellespont to Europe, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him in this vision, saying, Come over here and help us. Come over to Macedonia and tell us about the gospel. When he, Paul, had seen the vision, immediately we, notice that, it's really important, Geraldine. it's W-E, not they, not Paul, not they, but we. When Paul had seen the vision to come to Macedonia, to go from Asia, the continent, to Europe, the continent, we, so the writers, including himself at this point, sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. You know, one of the hardest things that Christians have to deal with is when we receive a no answer to prayers. And I I mean, I'm not talking about prayers that are selfish or superficial. I mean, when we receive just a clear no answer to um, unselfish prayers about super important things. Well, the good news is, I think the principles that can help us understand how some of that works, are found in this passage today as Paul gets at least two no answers to his prayer. And really, when you look at it, there's the second missionary journey. We'll walk through that again in a minute. Should have gone to that mount. We're going to learn that God's no's are actually yeses to different things, things that he wants us to have. Okay, before we dive into that, let's pray. And as is our custom, we want to pray for uh, our uh teachability to God's word, our troops and our peace officers. And, is Olga Pollack still in the room? No? Okay. I was going to ask her to pray for a special request. Uh, Meg and Doug, are you here? Did I miss you? Okay. I didn't see you. Yeah. You know, I want you to pray for Bob, uh, Gundy and, uh, Meg and Doug. Uh, Doug's, uh, Doug, Meg's father is in the middle of kind of a real mental confusion and a real, a very serious situation. And uh, he's being checked out and is going to have to probably move to a different resident situation. So she's asked us to pray for all that situation. So uh, okay, I'm going to ask you to pray for Meg. And then I'm going to ask uh, Mike to pray for teachability troops and peace, peace officers. Okay, so let's pray. Amen. Thank you, Mike. Um, yesterday was Halloween. And uh, I got a picture of four little kids dressed up for Halloween. Uh, but the setting for this is really significant because, of course, that's Lincoln and Vivian. And I think, and Debbie will correct me if I'm wrong, that's Eloise and that's Violet. But uh, that picture was taken at a Taker's Hospital yesterday at a NICU reunion for preemies that are doing well, by the grace of God. And so uh, they're supposed to put their uh, Halloween costumes on. Lincoln's an astronaut. Vivian's a, uh, ballerina, and I think they're polar bears, I'm not sure, uh, baby polar bears. But those, those are our youngest sons, uh, four kids, and there's one of the Nick U nurses that helped them. Uh, she was three, eleven, when she was born. He was, he was the big one, he was four, eleven. And they were both in, I think, between three and four pounds back in April when they were born. So, that's a pretty neat picture. And then, Equal time, and we went from zero grandkids to six in three years. It's very difficult to do that when you have two kids yourself. But there's, uh, there's Cooper, who's Jamie's oldest, and Lincoln, uh, on their way to a Halloween, a wholesome Halloween party. Peter, what did I say? Oh, sorry. Uh, can we start over? No. Yeah, I'm in trouble. Ja- Jamie listens to these things on the internet, so I hope, uh, no, please forgive me, Jamie. Don't let Kristen hear that one. But, uh, yeah, that's what that is. And so with, with the Halloween in our rearview mirror, and by the way, I want to say another, another nice uh, thank you to, to Shelby for uh, doing such a terrific job organizing this year's uh, festival. And uh, as Blanche was telling me, uh, wow, Brad, this is the first one in 27 years you weren't able to attend, and everybody's saying it's like the best one ever. So, uh, you know, I'm thinking that means two things. Number one, Shelby must organize them from now on every single year. And I don't need to come anymore because uh, obviously I've been messing it up. So, But in the spirit of uh, Halloween, um, and uh, in an effort to warm up your capacity for abstract thinking, before we dive into these five verses, uh, here are some children's Halloween jokes. Now so you might say, well, we're not children. Yeah, we're all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus, so... Uh, why, why don't angry witches ride their brooms? They're afraid of flying off the handle. (laughs) They're jokes for kids, you know. Where do baby ghosts go during the day? Day scare centers. What kind of cereal do monsters eat? Ghost toasties. How do you mend a broken jack-o'-lantern? you got to use a pumpkin patch. What kind of roads do ghosts haunt? Dead ends, obviously. Right? Uh, why did the game warden arrest the ghost? He didn't have a haunting license. Yeah. What is Dracula's favorite tourist attraction in New York City? Carla, you've been in New York City. The vampire state building. What's it like to be kissed by a vampire? It's a pain in the neck. (laughs) Two more. What is one, uh, what is one thing you can never give to the headless horseman? A headache. And finally, what kind of dog does Dracula have? A bloodhound. That's what he's got. Yeah, we're going to talk about uh, five little verses here tucked away in a much bigger narrative about the uh, second missionary journey. You might think there's not that much here, but there's really a couple of really neat principles that can be game changers for us, the way we think about our prayer life and our Christian life in general. And so we're going to say that God's no's are actually yeses. I'll tell you what, James did such a wonderful job last week on the passage in, in Judges and he's stressing, and as far as God's moral commandments, God's no's are designed to protect us and others from the fallout that invariably comes, and it opens us up to much better things. And God works in a similar kind of way, parallel to that, when he has to tell his children no to what uh, seemed to us to be very reasonable uh, prayer requests. Yeah, we're... Uh, just in the uh, beginning of the middle phases of the second missionary journey, the, church, the, church, uh, the missionary journeys always start in Antioch of Syria. And as you know, the first missionary journey kind of focused on the Galatian churches. So Paul uh, went and revisited them. Uh, he wanted apparently to go to Asia and the city of Ephesus. Asia in first century Roman parlance just referred to the westernmost part of Turkey. Uh, they didn't use the word Asia for the whole continent like we do today. So he apparently wanted to go here, and he was told no. And then he said, well, we'll go up here, and he was told no. So he goes to Troas, and has a vision that says, come over to Europe, come over to Macedonia, and he ends up, uh, hitting some of the most important cities in the Roman world with the gospel, including Philippi, Thessalonica, Athens, and Corinth. So quite often God's uh, nose, or actually, I got something different that you might not even have considered, it's going to be much better uh, for the program overall. But here's what we're going to see in verses 6 through 10. First, uh, after visiting the Galatian churches, kind of revisiting them, the missionary team, MT, was forbidden to go to Roman Asia and forbidden to go to Bithynia, another Roman province, so they end up in Troas. After receiving his Macedonian vision, as it's called, verses 9 and 10, Paul makes plans for the missionary team to travel and minister in Europe. Let's look at verses 6 through 8. After visiting the Galatian churches, they are forbidden to go to Roman, Asia, and Bithynia, so they go to Troas. Verse 6, they... Okay, you missed me. Um, they, who's They... Paul, Silas, and Timothy, which means Luke who's writing this is talking about something they're doing and he's not there yet, physically. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go to Asia, which was obviously what Paul kind of wanted to do, and that made sense because Ephesus was the third largest city in the ancient world, behind Rome and Alexandria. So that was a big place to go minister. And there was also there's already some a small church there. Somebody had taken the gospel there already. By the time he gets there at the end of the second missionary journey. But that was the plan. That was kind of his his plan. But he got a no there. Now, how was uh, he notified that he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia slash Ephesus? Think he got a text message? You know, what? Angel? Uh, I'm not sure how he got it. But here's what I do know. Go back to chapter 15, verse 32. Silas, who's working with Paul here, uh, is a prophet. As that passage talks about two guys at Antioch, Judas and Silas being prophets, which means they're getting direct divine revelation in a, a way that we're not getting today and that we've got in the New Testament written down for us. They encourage and strengthen the brethren with a lengthy message. You know why I always like to read verse 32 as much as possible, Lindley? Because long messages are in the Bible. See that? If it's not in your Bible, you're using the wrong translation. Okay? But uh, so sometimes some of us think, are told we talk too much but that's not possible so anyway yeah so Silas is a prophet Paul's an apostle they're able to uh, not only have great discernment but get uh, divine revelation in a more direct definitive sense than we typically get today so however the mechanism functioned they're told don't go all the way to the left don't go into Asia okay so uh, Zach Paul starts here goes here he's wanting to go here and God says don't go there is that because God doesn't love those people? Now I think it's all about timing and personnel, actually, as we'll see the next no. Okay? Look at verse 7. So they came to Mysia. And the plan was, after they got to Mysia, and again, Mysia is a region in, in Roman governance, but it's also a city right about there. And they wanted to go to Bithynia next. And look what we're told here. This is interesting. The only time in the Bible that the Holy Spirit is called by this title uh, when they, Paul, Silas, Timothy, came to Mysia, they were trying and to take the gospel into Bithynia, which is a, a region um, north and east of where they were. And yet, the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Now, you know, ultimately, um, forbidden by the Holy Spirit, um, the Spirit of Jesus didn't permit. That's saying that God, the Holy Spirit, however. He, manifested it to a prophet and apostle, told him, no, it's not God's will for you. But here's the thing. When we see the word of, we tend, in English, tend to think it means uh, possession. Uh, Those are the golf clubs of Brad. those That's the Bible of Brad. We wouldn't say it like that. We'd say that's Brad's Bible, that's Brad's golf clubs. But, you know, thats you might say it that way. And so I think when people say, well, you know, my God would never do X, Y, and Z, You know, when they're saying my God would never do something that the Bible says he will do, I'm thinking, well, you got the wrong God, you know. But I've heard people like Billy Graham say, well, my God says in Scripture, and it almost sounds like he's saying, you know, that God works for me or he belongs to me. But you you don't just have genitive of possession. You quite often in English and here in the Greek text, you have something called genitive of association, the God I'm associating with. And I say all that to say this. I think a, a nice paraphrase of verse 7 would be, uh, they got to Mycia, they intended to go north and east to the uh, area of Bithynia, but the Spirit associated with Jesus. Who's the Spirit associated with Jesus? That's the Holy Spirit. A very important teaching of Scripture is a teaching no human being would make up because nobody understands it. There's only one God, and you're not Him, okay? There's only one God, and he exists in three persons, and they're co equal and co eternal. God the Father is God, but the Father is not the Son. The Father did not die on the cross. The Father did not become incarnate and take on humanity without cease to be deity. That would be God the Son who did that. The first person, second person, third person. God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is full deity, has all the attributes of deity, but he's not the Father, and He's not the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is full deity. The spirit of Jesus, the spirit associated with Jesus, is co-equal with Jesus. We're talking about God, the Holy Spirit here. So that's important. Uh, people try to come up with analogies. They all break down. That diagram uh, goes back to the third or fourth centuries. It was the early attempt to put the Trinity on two dimensions, and it breaks down too. The thing you want to avoid is modalism, which was an ancient a way to grapple with this, which isn't correct, it's, which says, well... Um, Wolfgang, Dr. Wolfgang Dieg is a believer, and he's a husband, and he's a father. And in the same way, uh, when God is creating the universe, we call him the father. When God, Dr. Dieg is, I mean, God, uh, is, uh, incarnate, we call him the son. And when God's inspiring scripture, we call him the spirit. One God with three different roles. We're not saying one God with three different roles. They do have different roles. For instance, in salvation, God the Father is the author of the plan of salvation. Throughout the Bible, it's always God the Father who's got a plan, who's got a decree, who who does all the stuff behind the scenes in the eternity past. God the Father is the author of the plan of salvation. God the Son is the active agent of salvation. He's the one who makes the atoning sacrifice. And how did he validate the saving power of his atoning sacrifice on the cross three days later? The resurrection. That's God the Son who's the active agent of salvation, right? The Holy Spirit's the activating agent. He can mix the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And look what Jesus says about the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Go to uh, John 16 real quick. John 16. And uh, you guys know that John 13-17 through is the Upper Room Discourse. Just before uh they leave uh the last supper and go to gethsemane for the lord to be arrested he teaches them this incredible truth and look what we read in uh this is the lord jesus speaking in uh john 16 verse 7 uh he's told them he's leaving and they can't come but they'll come later and they're freaking out the uh, 11 believing apostles and he says in verse 7 of john 16 uh but i tell you the truth it's to your advantage in a uh practical, pragmatic sense that I go away, that I go back to heaven, die on the cross, resurrection forty days later, ascend back to heaven. For if I do not go, the helper will not come to you in his New Testament form. We're talking about that, talking about that on Wednesday nights, talking about the restrainer leaving before the end times kicks in through the rapture event. So we're sending the Holy Spirit in a special way. In the old testament he selectively indwelt prophets, priests, and kings. In this era, every single believer is permanently indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. That's a whole different ballgame on this side of the cross. Uh, but, when we're talking about, say, salvation, the Holy Spirit is what? The activating agent? One way He does that is conviction of sin. You gotta realize you're a sinner before you realize you need a Savior. He, when He comes in that sense, will convict the world concerning sin, concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, you got it. Righteousness, you need it. Judgment, it's coming. That's kinda, of what He does to you before you get saved. I was very convicted for 45 minutes in the back row of Baptist revival a day. I got saved at nine, age 9. I'd never robbed any banks, sold any heroin or anything. But the guy nailed me for like 45 minutes. Hell, fire, and damnation, and you're a sinner, and sinners go to hell. And I thought, I am done, man. I've, I've done it. I'm, I'm. He finally got to the cross. And man, I ran to the cross. In fact, God pushed me and crammed me up against the cross, praise God, but yeah, he convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Billy Graham might say some words. James Mitchell might say some words. Rick Schoenmeier might say some things to somebody and the Holy Spirit uses that to convict, but it's the Holy Spirit that convicts and regenerates. not anybody's, And it's not on your schedule. It's on God's schedule. Um, verse 12. I have many more things to say to you, 11 believing apostles, but you can't bear them now. You've got to get on the other side of the resurrection before you're going to be able to understand that stuff. But he... After the Ascension, when he does his New Testament ministry in dwelling the church, he, the Spirit of Truth, Acts calls him the Spirit associated with Jesus, the Holy Spirit, third person of Trinity. He will guide you into all truth. Ultimately, the apostles write the New Testament, so we have all the truth we need spiritually to be what God wants us to be. And he'll not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he'll disclose it to you. Just like Jesus takes a lower role in the plan. He's the sending, not the sender. The Holy Spirit takes a subordinate role. They're co-equal ontologically, but they take different roles. Uh, you want to be like Jesus? Be a great servant. You want to be like Jesus? Be a really great servant, with a great attitude, even when nobody but God's watching. That's the way you do that, right? Look what the Spirit of Jesus is going to do. He will glorify, not himself, but whom? Me, Jesus, for he'll take of mine and disclose it to you. Okay, go back to Acts. So it's interesting. This is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus, uh, excuse me, where the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Jesus. But we're not talking about the Spirit within Jesus, like his own human spirit or something, or a spirit that belongs to him and is subordinate to him ontologically. We're talking about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit associated with Jesus as he announced in his ministry and particularly in the Upper Room Discourse. Okay. Um, verse eight, and so passing by Mysia, we didn't stay long. They come down to, to Troas. So look at this. A couple of principles jump out at me. Uh, they were wanting to go uh, to uh, Asia, which is the the province, as you know, not the continent. Right here, go to an Ephesus, and however. Halber- uh, they found out, and I think it was direct divine revelation either through Paul or Silas, uh, they were fit forbidden to go to Asia. So now they've got to do another plan. And now it says uh, we were wanting to go to Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus didn't permit them. Wow, pastor, you had two things that were wrong there that you thought God was going to do. I guess you're just not listening to the Lord, are you? Uh, you can sometimes misinterpret things, you know. Yeah. Well, I just thought God wanted me to be happy, so he wanted me to trade my... uh 62-year-old wife, she's about to get 63, so I can, we're going to, 63 is a big number, but when you're about to be 63, you just hold on to 62, right? Right, sister? I'm in trouble. Why did I go there? Uh, but, yeah, you know, if I were to say, well, God, I know God wants me to be happy, and I work so hard for him that it's okay for me to trade my 62-year-old wife in for two 31-year-old girlfriends, you know? Uh, I'm not talking about that. But even when you're within the frame of God's moral will trying to figure out the right thing to do, you may lock into something And it turns out it doesn't work or it's not what God wanted you to do at all. And that's what's happening here uh, two times in regard to going to Asia, in regard to going to Bithynia. And here's what I'm going to say to you. Quite often, many no answers to prayer. When we ask for something significant and specific and unselfishly, sometimes, Nicole, you'll ask for something like that and God just says no for whatever reasons. But no answers to prayer are actually... I was going to say that for later. I blew it. Uh, no answers to prayer quite often are not yet but later answers. Because here's the thing. Uh, God's will is not just a what. It's a when and a how. And I think, uh, I, you know, I look at folks who are going to get married or young husbands and I think most Christian husbands want to be great husbands. They want to do the right thing. They want to meet their wife's needs. But, I mean, our brains have been damaged by testosterone. It's hard for us to understand women. And we tend to want to give our wives what we want. And while that may be a valid thing in your marriage, what you're wanting and what you're wanting to give, your wife wants other stuff that's equally valid. So God's will is not just a what. You tell the average husband, young Christian husband, love your wife like Christ loves the church. Well, that means I'll do X, Y, and Z for her because it's things he'd like. To get from her, so he's gonna give those things to, to her. But God's will is not just a, a what, it's also a when and a how. So you ladies, Debbie, you gotta help Dale with the how. Debbie, if you don't divorce me after making the crack about you getting older. Uh, and by the way, you know, I'm, I look particularly old today because I went to the, uh, I went to the skin clinic for the first time and I, you know, I've had seven different kinds of skin cancer, including melanoma. But they kind of, I looked like I was in a knife fight and lost. I mean, they burned stuff off and they removed stuff and uh, it was kind of scary. But they assured me all this was pre-cancer and so I'm, I'm fine. But I just looked like I was on a pirate ship last week uh, and I really wasn't. But uh, yeah, God's will is not just a what, it's a when and a how. And quite often our no answers are, I got something different in a later time frame. Uh, it's not necessarily always bigger and humanly speaking better. You may be working at one business and say, man, if I could just be vice president of that bigger bank or something, everything would be great. And you pray for it and you apply for it and you're fully qualified and you don't get it. But then six months later, a smaller bank wants you and it turns out to be it's in Pebble Beach and it includes a membership at Pebble Beach and Spyglass Hill. And, and, and when that kind of thing happens, you go, oh wow, now I get it. Now I kind of see it. And sometimes when you get to be as old as I am, I've had enough of those scenarios play out where I've been able to connect the dots. Isn't that an advantage blanche of walking with the Lord for a while? You see a lot of that in hindsight. But some of the things I've asked for that I didn't get or I've seen other people ask for they didn't get, I still have no idea. I don't see how God's connecting those dots. But that's where faith comes in, you know. You're never going to have enough information to legitimately second-guess God because you know 10 or 15 factors and God knows all 15 trillion gadugle, or whatever the biggest number is, you know, factors. And he says, I like it. I like the tapestry. You're looking at the back of the tapestry. It looks like a mess. I'm looking at the front. I like it. And so it's interesting that for me, as Paul is told, you can't go to Asia. Well, when is this? Well, according to Honor's chronology, um, the events we're reading about today took place in September of 53 A.D. The crazy thing is, so in, in September 53, Paul wants to go to Asia, and God says, no. How about Bithynia? No, I want you to go to a whole different continent. But, but in, in September 53, Paul's told no, don't go to Asia. Now, this is the second missionary journey, right? He's got another one that's, that's recorded in Acts. He may have gone on the fourth that happens after Acts. But uh, on the third missionary journey, basically, Mel, a lot of people don't know this. Basically, the third missionary journey is Paul going from Antioch. It just won't go away. Well, it, it, it locked up. Anybody with my hair should really be making hair jokes, right? But, uh, yeah, that's the second missionary journey. The third missionary journey is basically Paul starting from Antioch, going to Galatia, and spending two and a half years in Ephesus. Where's Ephesus located under the Roman label? Yeah, so, but that's three years later. And so I think, you know, as you look at the big picture, you're saying, obviously, God wanted Paul in Ephesus, um, and I thought I wrote the exact... Timing down, but uh, I don't, I can't access it. But roughly three years later, and so uh, don't, don't despair. God is smart enough to know how to answer your prayers. And if you, you know, if you're praying for Bob Gundy today, and you say, "Lord, please," praying for Bob Gundy, he's uh, uh, in room 132 of a particular uh, uh, assisted living center, and in fact, he's in 121. God can figure that out. God will be able to find him for you. You know, if if we just prayed the right number, you know, God went to the wrong room and healed the wrong person. It doesn't work like that. He's smarter than you are, okay? And prayer is not a crowbar where we kind of uh, pry stuff out of God's hands. It's a channel of communication where we seek and submit to His will. And sometimes He's going to say no. And I like to say, no is a perfectly legitimate answer for a parent to give to a child. Have these two ever said no to you? Yes. Perfect. And they're great parents. And God's the greatest parent, so he's not afraid to say no. Another thing I would say is when God closes the door we want it open, he's going to open another door that he wanted open. And it may be in a smaller, less more obscure place than you had envisioned or might be bigger than anything you could have imagined. But that's the way God works. So you gotta kinda give God the benefit of the doubt when you're getting no answers and Keep praying until something happens, remember that? Now, you know, we're gonna shift gears now go to verses 9 and 10. Uh, after receiving the Macedonian vision, he knows exactly where he's supposed to go, right? Across the the the, the, the water over into the region of Macedonia. And I was gonna set this up, and I was gonna make a, a funny joke, and I said, I'm gonna show you a picture of Paul when he received the Macedonian vision, and then I was gonna show you Donald Trump on a bad hair day. And again, I don't, I shouldn't be making hair jokes, but, uh, you know, you don't, you don't see those kind of pictures very often. And if he gets elected, his first act will be to delete, delete all those pictures on all the internet sites in the, the whole world. That'd be priority one. Then we'll deal with, you know, nuclear proliferation. Okay, look at verses nine and ten. So, uh, we're, we're, we're in Troas, just across from, uh, Asia. Or just across Asia from Europe, I should say. And while they're there, kind of wondering what God wants them to do, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. Now, what does that mean? A dream is when you're asleep and you see stuff. Not every dream you get is designed to be divine communication, but there are some times for biblical characters in dreams where they're asleep and having a dream. The dream had a divine communication purpose, right? But a dream's when you're asleep. What's a vision? Getting that same kind of input while you're awake. So these terms are important. Look what happens here. Look at verse 9 again. Now you know that. A vision, it happens when you're awake, Nicole, appeared to Paul in the night. He's probably up all night praying for direction when he gets this thing. You know, it looks like a hologram or something. Uh, people say, what did this guy look like? How did Paul know that he was a Macedonian? I don't know what the guy looked like. Uh, I'm not sure what he was wearing. I've, I've had people say he was wearing all kinds of distinctive tunics or a military uniform or something. I'm not sure what he looked like. I'm not sure Paul knew he was Macedonian because of what he was wearing. Here's why I think Paul knew why the man in the vision was a Macedonian. Luke's just telling you uh, Paul was awake, probably all night praying. He has a vision of a man. Now, as it turns out, he's a man of Macedonia, but we know he's from Macedonia Because he's standing, appealing to Paul, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. (laughs) Right? So he's a Macedonian based on that. So I wouldn't, don't get too excited about all those crazy theories people come up with about what this guy looked like. The point is, we're taking the gospel to a different level, Lance. We're going from Asia, the continent, to Europe, the continent. We're going from Trias, just a small little town at that point, to Philippi, huge city, Thessalonica, important seaport. Athens, that's where all the bright philosophers hung out. They weren't real crazy with the gospel when they heard it. And then Corinth, that's sin city, and yet God does some amazing stuff in that so-called sin city, right? Uh, when he, Paul, had seen the vision, uh, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. We're not, we're no, we know we're not supposed to go to Asia. Uh, The province, not go to Bithynia. Now we know God wants us to go across the water into Europe, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Uh, Verse 10, as we pointed out, watch this. When he, Paul, has seen the vision, immediately we, the missionary team. Now, look at verse 6. Jan, it didn't say we passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region. It says they this is Luke referring to three other people. He's not there at the time. But now, Luke is with Paul, Silas and Timothy, in Troas. Luke is kind of jump, jumps in and out of the second, third missionary journey, but he's all the way with Paul from uh, Caesarea to Rome at the end of the book. This is the first of four major we or us passages in the book of Acts, and it's if it doesn't make your uh, heart pitter-patter a little bit to realize, not only has God allowed this guy, Dr. Luke, to write this thing and preserve it, so we have an English translation, Luke is actually an eyewitness to many of the events in this book, uh, as he points out by using the first-person uh, pronoun there. Not they, but we. When he had seen the vision, immediately we saw the missionary team, four people now, to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us, Paul, Timothy, Silas, and Luke, to take the gospel there. Uh, you know, uh, it's funny. Paul kind of had three phases of his plan, when you, or maybe four phases. Uh, when you go back to the days just before this missionary journey started, remember we did the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas and John Mark left and quit. And then they do the whole thing, and they go back to the sending church of Antioch, and they're there for a little while. And then Paul says, "Hey, let's go back and revisit all the cities we visited on the first missionary journey." Barnabas, let's go back. And what did Barnabas say? "Yeah, let's go, but let's take Timothy. I mean, let's take uh, let's take Mark with us again. Let's give Mark another chance." And what did Paul say? I, "I can't do that. I don't trust him. You know, he bombed out, and he's a good guy, and eventually he'll get his cred back. But to me, I can't trust him. I, I just don't." want to go on a trip like that with him because I'm, I can't depend on him to hang in there with us. And Barnabas said, you know what? i got to disagree with you on that. I think he's good to go. He made a mistake. I think he's stronger. I totally trust him. And so Paul's plan A was he and Barnabas go back and revisit the Galatian churches. That was the plan. God had a bigger plan than that. And as I've mentioned to you, as it turns out, Paul and Silas and Timothy and some of the time Luke... They don't just revisit the Galatian churches. They go all the way across into Europe and Philippi and Thessalonica and Athens and Corinth. That's a big, big uh, quantum jump. Plus, what did Barnabas do? Barnabas. The, the text says Barnabas took Mark and they went back to Cyprus. That was the first place Paul and Barnabas and, and the group had gone on the first missionary journey. And according to church history, from there they go down to Jerusalem and across the North Atlantic. So God said, Paul, you're thinking too small. I don't want you and Barnabas just to do some follow-up work. I want you to have a team and Barnabas have a team and I want you to go all the way into Europe and I want him to go all the way across North Africa. So, you know, Paul had kind of a plan A, but God uh, kind of, uh, him and Barnabas revisit everybody and then God changed the circumstances. So it's Paul, Silas, uh, Timothy, and, and later Luke to go to and beyond Galatia. Uh, Paul's plan was, okay, now we're rolling, let's go to Asia. Let's go to Ephesus. And if we can't do that, well, let's go to Bithynia. And God says, no. Basically, go to Troas and wait. And then, uh, Paul is told that what for him would have been his plan C, is actually God's plan A from the from the start. I don't want you to, to go to Asia now. You can do that during this third missionary journey. I don't want you to go to Bithynia. Peter's going to do that. If you read 1 Peter, the first couple of verses... He talks about believers in Bithynia. He's ministered to. God knew that the Bithynians needed Peter, not Paul, right? But the Philippians needed Paul, not Peter, right? So, you know, you've got to be flexible (laughs) to live a Christian life because God's the chief and you're just an Indian. I mean, you're just a Native American. Okay? And that includes pastors too. Christians aren't celebrities. We're just servants, right? So... uh. While bigger isn't necessarily better, and I'm going to say in this case, Paul's missionary journeys become much bigger than he had planned initially himself. While bigger isn't necessarily better, quite often God's vision for us is different and quite often bigger than our vision for us. God's vision is quite often different and bigger than our vision for us. Well, you know, golly, you know, I grew up and I I played baseball and I wanted to be a golfer and I played a lot of competitive golf in high school, first part of college and you know, the inability to make short putts under pressure, you know, uh, and a lack of distance. I could only hit my persimmon, persimmon-headed driver with a bladder ball about 220 in the air. And now that I'm 62, I can still hit it 220 in the air, you know, as a, thanks to technology. Um, so, you know, the inability to make short putts uh, kept me from doing that. So I didn't get to do that. And then I was going to be a dentist, remember? Uh, and I always say my uh, my wife married... Uh, me under false pretenses because she had just graduated from dental hygiene school and we got married. And I was halfway through my biology slash pre-dental career. And uh, I got into dental school. And then after about, after we did 12 weeks of gross anatomy, uh, I decided I don't like being a dentist. I mean, it's a bad time to decide, you know. Um, so uh, talking about the will of God, not just being a what and win The way I really learned that was from my wife because after we uh, really got going to dental school, the more we did, the less I liked it. And I just felt like this is not a good thing. And uh, it's funny because I speak to you every week and I teach a course on communications at Cameron. Uh, and listen, when I was married, when I was uh, in dental school, I was the most terrified person in the world about doing any public speaking. And by public speaking, I mean two or more people. Okay, I could do one-on-one, but two more, I would freak out, I'd get nervous, my heart would beat, you know, I, I couldn't come across well. So, I mean, how could I be a preacher? But during that phase of dental school, I'm re- becoming increasingly unhappy with dental school, and, and just, I felt like a square peg being forced in a round hole, uh, our little church, Bible church we attended, met in a daycare center, they didn't have a nice facility like this, just a handful of people, but they taught the Bible, they prayed, they loved each other, we went there, for our church, we're the only 20-year-olds in the thing, everybody else was 40 or 50, uh, but we didn't notice that, they all kind of loved the Lord, and we did too, so it's fine, but uh, they got so desperate a couple of times, they asked me to teach Sunday school for little kids, and that kind of scared me, but I did that okay, and then eventually, uh, the, the the guy that taught the teenage group, and the teenage group was like four people, it wasn't something like James does, which is Super Bowl quality youth group, it was like a, a Sunday school class for four teenagers, and he was going to have to miss, and the three people who normally fill in for him were all out of town or something. So they asked me because I was the closest in age. And, you know, I just didn't have enough guts to say no to the guy who asked me because I respected him so much. But I didn't want to do it because I knew it would be a disaster. So, uh, you know, I've, I'm, I'm doing like dental surgery on people during the week, that week, but I'm afraid about having to teach four teenagers about Jesus. You know, it's, it's weird. But, uh, yeah, so I'm nervous all that week, but I overstudied. Uh, this is my tendency. And... Uh, so I'm so nervous. I'm just scared, Dennis. I'm shaking. I'm sweating. I go around the corner to our little room, and I realize there's only one teenager there. Apparently, the other three had heard I was going to be teaching, so they decided not to come. And but I'm still nervous. I'm just I'm terrified. I got a you know 15 year old kid with pimples, and I'm afraid of this. I'm not afraid of him. I can take him, you know. But I'm shaking. And then well, let's let's open up the Bible, you know, to the Gospel of John, you know. And it's kind of like the Spirit just said. Just calm down. You know, it's just one kid. Just tell them about Jesus, okay? Just tell them what you learned, you know. And I went, yeah, okay, yeah, I'll do that. Uh, I didn't hear a voice, but it was, I like that. And so I, I did it. I got through the class. I didn't throw up or anything. And and you know, at that level, you know, that's all you got to do. So you know, two months later, when the teacher missed, they say, hey, you did such a good job. It's like Shelby, sure, you did such a good job. Now you got to do it every year, you know. Uh, now I became the unofficial substitute teacher for the youth group. Uh, and that time, like, three of them showed up. And that was tough, but I got through it. And so eventually, um, they got so desperate, they needed a, somebody to fill in for the adult Sunday school class on Sunday morning. And again, I didn't want to do it. I was going to be terrified. I, th- I may have told this story in this detail before, but I'm not, I'm not I'm making this up. But uh, I went ahead and said yes, and I was terrified and scared, and just scared spitless. And we, we had a room of, like, 25 people in there, and we had one guy with a guitar, so we'd sing one song Pray, and then the teacher would come up and teach. And I am scared. I'm sweating. My heart just feels like it's beating on my chest uh, during the song. So I'm going, "Jesus loves me," you know. So, so it sounded like when i was singing it. Uh, that's the way I felt, waiting to be come up. And then we prayed, and I, and, I, and it got worse. And I said, "Lord, you know, please, please, please don't let this happen. I mean, uh, this is going to be a train wreck, and they're going to, I'm going to totally waste their time. Plus, it's going to be really embarrassing, you know." Uh, and nothing happened. I'm still scared spitless, but I I promise you, I'm not making this up. I was sitting about where Mike was, and so we're standing up to pray, and he finishes praying and says, Okay, today Brad McCoy is going to fill in, and I am scared spitless, and my heart is beating like this, and I feel like this is going to be a total train wreck and so embarrassing, and I turned around, and boom, it's gone. I'm solid, and it was nobody whispered to me, but it's like, just tell them what you know. You learned some good stuff from Ephesians 2. Just tell them. And I was almost giddy. I was kind of looking around at this huge crowd of 20 people thinking, I'm not scared spitless. It's kind of like, maybe I can do this. And I, I did it, and that was the, and that was a miracle. And I never, when I, you know, had the first phases of the speech class every semester, when you have two or three out of the 25, they're just so scared. I, I tell them, I know exactly how you feel uh, but, uh, you know, it's unconstitutional for me to tell you about the mechanism that fixed my problem. You know, uh, you can't quite go into those details. But, but yeah, so uh, so I, I end up dropping out of dental school. But the funny thing is, um, uh, when I told my, and all this is happening, when I'm convinced I need to go to Dallas Seminary, but my wife, who's one of the greatest Christians I've known in my life, could not see that as rational because it's so hard to get into dental school, and I was already halfway through, and just another year, couple of years, and I'm done, and then I get to be rich and famous like Aaron. You know, uh, that's the hard part when you get in the real world. But I mean, bless her heart, she could not see it. It blew her categories. It could not be God's will for us to have gotten married, got this money. Uh, how we got the money for dental school is a long story, but you won't believe it. It wasn't. It was legal, totally legal. Uh, but uh, yeah, when the movie comes out. You'll find out. Um, but, uh, yeah, so she couldn't see it. And that's when, you know, and, and I realized, technically, God is the commander-in-chief of every Christian marriage, and the husband is a full colonel, and the wife is a lieutenant colonel. It's not, she's a buck private. The kids are the buck privates, okay? The husband's a full bird colonel, The wife's a lieutenant colonel. He's commanding officer. He's an executive. She's the executive officer. Any commanding officer is tight with his XO because otherwise nothing works and you've got to uh, consider all their input and factor it. So, you know, I I realized I outranked outranked my wife, but I felt like if I just said, Woman, submit! I'm dropping from dental school and we're going to Dallas Seminary. I'm going to drag you to Dallas and you're going to be a pastor's wife and you're going to like it whether you want to or not. You know, I wasn't very smart at that point, but I realized... That can't be God's will for me to drag her to seminary. It just can't be. I'm convinced it's God's will for me to drop dental school and go to Dow seminary. But it just seemed like God was just saying, "You know what? It's not the right time yet." And literally, as almost a year later, um, a couple things happen. We're we're in clinic now most of the time, working on patients, you know, with big needles and stuff, you know. And I got no depth perception, but I didn't know that. Uh, I, here's what happens. I'm doing like a class two amalgam on a patient. We had individual cubicles that, and they couldn't see us. You know, the teachers, we had to find the teachers when we got the stopping points and they'd come in, put their coffee down and look and see what we did. So they're not actually watching us do anything. They're just looking at endpoints. So one day I'm trying to do, a, you know, a, like a, a second molar way in the back of a small person's mouth. As a dentist, you like big people with big mouths. It's easier to work on. But when you get a small, small lady with a small mouth, it's a pain, man, to work back there. But you're working back there, and my, basically I had, this is before AIDS and everything, Um I, had got, I basically had my face down her throat trying to see what I was doing. And that's the way I've done everything for, you know, two years in dental school. And a professor just happened to walk by and he said, what are you doing, McCoy? And I said, I'm doing a class two amalgam. <laughs> you know, what do you, you know. He said, come here. He said, you can't put your face down her throat like that, are you crazy? You know. Well will a million dollars in sexual harassment. No, she didn't say that. He didn't say that. Uh, he said you can't do that. He said you got to be able to see better than that. I said I, I can't see unless I do it like that, and I still can't really see what I'm doing. I'm really? So he, he goes, "Have you had your eyes checked?" And I said, "Yeah, I've been wearing glasses since I was 18 months old." Uh, so when's the last time you had a, a, a what's the MD that does? I'm drawing a blank. What's, uh, not optometrist. What's the, ophthalmologist? Yeah. But thank you. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, I, my, my mother was too cheap to get me to an op, op, ophthalmologist. I went to optometrist. ophthalmologist. No, no, nothing wrong with them, by the way. I'm going to finish this real quick once I finish the story. So just, I will be done. But this is my one chance. This you can't fire me next week because it's Pastor Appreciation Week. So, yeah, I don't think, technically. But anyway, yeah. So he said, have you ever had your eyes worked up? I said, well, I've gone to an ophthalmologist since I was here. You got to go to an ophthalmologist. Now, this is University of Texas Health Center in, in Houston. Everything's free for us. So he said, "I'll call him right now, and make an appointment for you." So, like the next day, I get the first, like a two-hour workup on my eyes, and um, it and it takes like a week to work up the results. And when I came, when it went back a week later, the ophthalmologist, wonderful uh, Christian ladies, it turns out, says she sits me in the office like I've got a terminal disease, man. The shades are drawn, it's dark. I thought I got tumors. <laughs> I'm, I'm done, you know. And she said, she literally said, "I wish you were in law school because you have fine two-dimensional vision, but you cannot do dental school. You, you're going to kill somebody." <laughs> said, this is the worst three-dimensional up-close vision I've ever seen. And I said, "Well, you know, I always had trouble with fly, with fly balls at night, you know, under the lights. I could never quite judge them, you know, and, you know, uh, which was tough. Those pop pop-ups like that. And now I know. So that's the first thing I thought. Now I know why I was such a bad fielder under the lights, you know. But I said, R- "Really?" She said, "Yeah. You need to get out of dental school." And I went, at one level, I went, wow, okay? Now, what I failed to tell you real quick was the weekend before, this was on Tuesday, weekend before that, Debbie had gone out of town to be with her parents, not because she was mad at me, just for something else. And when she came back, she basically said, you need to get out of dental school and go go to seminary. She she couldn't see that for like a year, and however God made her connect the dots, I think she saw how miserable I was trying to slug through this. She said, "You didn't, and she wasn't like, go ahead and get out and we'll go. It was she's totally 100% supportive from, from be, not being able to see it to 100% supportive over a weekend. So she comes back and says, "You need to get out." And I said, "Well, you know, I'm going to the ophthalmo- ophthalmologist tomorrow or whatever or two days to find out what she's got to say." So let's find out. So she basically said, "You cannot stay in score You're going to kill somebody." First time you do a root canal, you know. The funny thing is, I've done two root canals, <laughs> yeah, you know? uh, and they're all alive as far as I know. They're probably dead now. It's a long time ago, but. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, at, at that point, it was obvious to me that uh, the guy had confirmed the lesson that uh, the reason I didn't force my wife to go or divorce my wife and say, well, I'm trying to do God's will here. And I, I've, I've known situations where people have said, just divorce her and go do God's will or drag her and force her to do God's will. And I thought, no, I, I don't think uh, that that would be a good timing. If God wants me to leave dental school and go to down seminary, he's got to convince her. I totally trust her. And he did. But he did it a year late for me. I would have liked to have been uh, going to Dallas Seminary Center. So, take this to heart. Okay, is that a good finish? Uh, God's no's are actually yeses for other things. Some of those other things we may not see until after this life, but he's always going to connect the dots. You know, a principle I say from time to, from time, to time is for every negative in the Bible there's always, almost always a corresponding positive using the same context. When, when God says... Uh, don't steal why does he say that to like Joseph Randall you know he uh, you know he you realize Joseph Randall the running back for the Cowboys you know uh, has a shoplifting charge he stole underwear and English lather you know he's making like two million dollars a year but he has to steal uh, The problem with stealing stuff is that's not your stuff that's somebody else's. The fallout of that is hey you may go to jail number two you're defrauding somebody else. What does Ephesians say? Don't let him who steals steal no more. Let him work and share. Don't lie. Speak the truth in love. When you're lying, you're not speaking the truth. Lying, you have to you have to have really good memory. Remember all the lies you you, you told. You hurt people when you lie, cheat, and steal. So much. God's not saying uh, all the stuff on the on the don't list is fun stuff. I don't want you to have the fun. I want to help you avoid going off-road and going through a, a, a barbed wire fence and wrecking your life, your vehicle. Just stay on the road. You'll be able to avoid the fallout, avoid hurting other people with fallout, and it opens you up to many, many positive things. So ultimately, that's the way I interpret no answers to my prayers. Maybe God's got something different. Uh, maybe it's just a timing issue. Maybe He didn't want me to do what I'm praying for. He wants somebody else to do it kind of thing. But once you realize there are a lot of plausible reasons god's got the right to say no to you anytime he wants to and more importantly to me but once you realize some of these mechanisms and one of these these principles that you see in scripture you go okay yeah it makes it a little easier i think to trust him so god can and will use us even though he doesn't need us but no answers are not a signal to doubt pout and drop out they're a signal to doubt your doubts <laughs> Realize you don't have enough information to legitimately second-guess God and to realize that his no's are actually yeses. Okay? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us to be more uh, sensitive to your complexity rather than just automatically assuming if we're praying for something substantial and that appears to us to be wonderful and you say, no, it just doesn't happen, that you're mean or you're not... Uh, uh, watching you don't care, those kind of things. Help us to be uh, more in tune at a relational level with the fact that your no's are yeses to other things. When we don't get what we want, you're giving us what you want us to have for your good reasons. And I, I, Lord, I know very uh, intimately there are some scars and losses and hurts uh, that we uh, can receive in this world that can't be totally healed this side of heaven but we've got heaven where Paul says, I'm convinced that uh, the glories of what we will see in heaven aren't worthy to be compared uh, with the problems we face now. They're so much greater, so much greater. So help us to have a divine viewpoint. Help us to realize there's a lot of reasons you might say no or later to our prayers. And uh, help us not to doubt, pout, drop out when we're not getting exactly what we want, the way we expect or think we uh, deserve so that we might find a deeper awareness of your will and a deeper and a different place to serve and to be. I thank you for each one who's here. Thank you for their good attention. I pray for anyone here this morning who's not from the depth of their heart uh, received Jesus Christ and his salvation. I pray you might open their eyes to the Holy Spirit to convict them of sin. They got it. We all break our own standards, much less yours at our worst. Righteousness, we don't have it. We're not perfect. And judgment is coming, but help them to see that everything necessary to forgive them sins and their sins and make them right for heaven is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We've been made for a person and a place, and no matter how many yes answers to prayers we get, we're never, we're, we're gonna be yearning for something greater until we're with Him in that place, and you call everyone in this room to be part of that through faith in Christ. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner, I'm guilty, my fault, I can't fix it by my own good works or coming to church or trying harder or praying more, but I believe You can because I dare to believe You died for me on the cross to pay for my sin, to pay my sin debt, and You rose again from the dead supernaturally, and I trust You alone to be my Savior. I trust my entire eternal uh, uh, character and my, my eternity into your hands. I receive you as my Savior. And I pray that uh, if anyone's prayed that prayer, more importantly, put their trust in Christ alone, that you'd fill them with your light, your love, and realize that now they've got a journey, they've got to walk with you, and that you're going to produce fruit in their lives that will glorify you and contribute to the kingdom. Again, Father, help us to see your no's as yeses in different directions. And help us to doubt our doubts when we doubt that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.